0: This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2.
1: On Hope 103.2, Laura with you and joining us in this duo, Lee Hatcher. You are heading off from Open House onto some big brand new adventures. I wanted to catch up with you before you left.
0: It's lovely to be back on oh, nights, nice. It's good Love to have
1: you back. Big. It's been ages. Yes. But where are you going?
0: Well, I'm going to be the new Director of Public Affairs, the first Director of Public Affairs for the wonderful Hammond Care organisation. It is a world leader in aged care palliative care and dementia care. It has a rich marvellous history which goes back to the centre of Sydney in the early days of the Great Depression where a guy called Robert Hammond, who's the Anglican minister there, set up... um, Relief centres, emergency employment bureaus, housing for really, really needy people. In the midst of the depression, they pioneered when when no one else was doing aged care in the fifties. They went out on a huge limb and pioneered that. And uh, since the nineties, have been really leading the world in their in their care of people suffering dementia. So I'm saying that I'm walking out of. 40 years of broadcast journalism, but into what I expect will be the biggest story that that will continue for generations to come with the baby boomers, the ageing population, increasing complexity of health issues as people mm. grow older and older. So there'll be a lot to do in the coming years. So
1: that. what is it that grabbed you about that that made you decide to transition?
0: Yeah, I've I've known of Hammond Care for quite a while, actually. Um, I interviewed a woman called Meredith Lake on the program last year who's the author of a book about the history of Hammond Care, which tells the story of who Robert Hammond was and what he did. For instance, he cashed in his superannuation just before he was to retire to buy this rather large tract of land at what is now Hammondville, a suburb southwest of Liverpool, to build cottages for blokes and their families and they had to be married they had to be um, family men they had to have been evicted from their home and they built cabins for them and gave them a fresh start so I interviewed Meredith I thought this is a marvelous organization but then it became very personal for me and my wife Meredith her parents stayed with us for the first four months of last year with her dad suffering leukaemia in the last few months of his life mm. and her mum was suffering dementia with and she was on dialysis. We searched high and low for aged care places for them and no one would take them, either together or especially doing dialysis. Yeah. And that includes a very prominent Christian aged care provider for whom um, we'd had quite a family connection. And the only mob that bothered with us was Hammond Care. And their attitude was, and they said, we don't do dialysis, but we're prepared to learn. Wow. And we'll take you on. And so for me, there are so many things that come together. The rich story of a truly Christian um, guy and an outlook and an activity for the journalist in me, it's going to be a huge story in the coming decades. Mm. But also it's very personal for us. And, you know, I'm a baby boomer. I kind of embody this whole challenge that mm. lies ahead of our community.
1: Well, it's exciting. And as you say, it, it comes sure it comes at a pretty huge milestone for you, 40 years in yes. the media industry. Obviously yeah. that's something that you're so passionate about and still passionate about. Yes. What was it that originally grabbed you that made you go, this is the path for me?
0: Well, I think a combination of... Good work, and I think that if you look at the uh, story of the early church and look at a lot of what Jesus did and was and said, uh, it's not just about converting people to Christian faith, although it is that. It's also, and, and the Apostle Paul through our, throughout his writings in the New Testament, constantly urges us on to good works. And good works for the needy. And if ever there's a needy sector in our population, it's those who suffer from dementia, those in the final stages of their life in palliative care, those in aged care. And I've read deeply and widely into this job, and they have a profound Christian ethic. Mm. Uh, It's not just – and I can say this because I I not only embody it as a baby boomer, but We've actually seen this at work long before this job came on the radar. We've seen it at work. So there are many organisations that say, oh, this is what we are. And it all sounds fine. And sometimes that's right. Sometimes it's not. Mm. But I actually know this to be true. And it's a very exciting prospect. To And my great hope would be, as they are already, uh, an outfit that is very involved in the shaping of policy, Uh, governments come to them and say where should we go what should we do with this it's my great hope that uh, in future years through this position of director of public affairs that we might kind of make Hammond Care the go-to organization when you want to know anything about aged care palliative care or dementia care
1: awesome now going back to the beginning of your media career
0: oh have I got a memory (laughs) for that
1: I hope so. I'm going to be like testing you. No, I need to know dates, names, locations.
0: <laughs> I you the date, 12th of November, 1973.
1: <laughs> hey, there you go. There, yeah. That one's been jotted down.
0: That's about all I can remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Way back then, when did you first fall in love with media, with the newsroom?
0: Well, that day, actually, that's the story. So when I was in my HSC year, if you'd said to me, what would you like to do next year? I wasn't planning to go to uni or anything else uh, for me my childhood and school uh, life was involved in music dramas concerts musicals uh, plays the lot <laughs> very little to do with the books <laughs> i must admit and uh so if you'd said to me in that final year my hsc year what do you want to do and i'd say i probably would have said i'd go into show business i think it rather <laughs> alarmed my parents Probably deservedly.
1: All parents do that when it comes to showbiz, I think. Yeah,
0: so they wisely and quietly guided me more towards kind of conventional media. And uh, by the time I finished my HSC, I actually had the offer of two jobs as office boys, one at 2W uh, and one at 2GB. And they said they were great listeners of 2GB because it was the key station of the great Macquarie Network. They said, oh, you know, go to that. So I dutifully turned up on the 12th of November 1973, uh, to begin work as an office boy. Now, the job of an office boy is aimed at exposing you to all the different departments of the radio station. It sounds ridiculous to people like you, but there were four people, four office boys, and it was their privilege to get this job and just wander around doing your deliveries and doing the, the normal day's work. And you're exposed to different parts of the radio station so that within a few months you could say, well, I'd like to do that or I'd like to do you know music or announcing or sport or technical or the rest of it. Anyhow, later in that morning, I was doing the first kind of delivery to the newsroom and it was in the lead up to the big kind of blockbuster midday news. And I walked up the corridor at towards the newsroom and it, the closer I got to it, the louder it all became all the buzz mm. of what then was a reasonably noisy newsrooms, uh, newsroom. not Newsrooms aren't that noisy <laughs> these days. You sit there with headphones on mm. and just tap on the computer. But mm. in those days, there were tapes spooling, those clunky old phones going. And
1: there'd be the typewriters yeah, and stuff. Yeah, the
0: typewriters. And there was one whole room of what they called telex machines which chatted through news tape um, endlessly, 24 hours a day. The smoke haze that hung over <laughs> the newsroom then. And I got to the got to the door and all these people yelling at each other and there's a lot of tension in the air and all these tapes spilling. And I had this stupid smile on my face <laughs> and I think it was literally love at first sight. I'll always remember where it started. And from that moment on, it's a very simple story. I just thought... This is where I want to be. Now, I'd not have any knowledge or experience or aspirations to be a journalist, didn't know much about what it was, but I just wanted to be where they were and relentlessly and mercilessly nagged the news director for the next five (laughs) months until he gave me a cadetship. I think as much to shut me up and get me out of
1: his hair. <laughs> I think it still works that way now though, right? <laughs> That's right,
0: exactly, yes.
1: Nag your way to the top. Totally. I love it.
0: Or and sometimes it works. Yeah, yes,
1: sometimes. We should preface that. Yes. Now, did you have any particular expectations when you started out? Like did you have did you have an idea of what you wanted the end game to be or where it might lead when you first started taking those steps?
0: Yeah. So people would say to me that they'd ask me that very same question, where would you want to be? And I really didn't know because, you know, I was 19. I was 18, actually, when I started. And you just took every day at a time. I think <laughs> now I think, oh, how how carefree of you. <laughs> um, I would have said if they'd pressed me, oh, I suppose I'd like to be a news executive or a news director or something like that. So within about um, three years, I was a news executive. I was the news editor of uh, the radio station 2CA, in Canberra. And that's after uh, being the Macquarie Network's Bureau Chief in Parliament House during all the constitutional crisis, mm. the dismissal.
1: And You're a young dude at this stage. Oh, I sure Very was. Young.
0: Everything was a baptism of fire. In fact, in most of the job changes I've had over 40 years, it's been a baptism of fire. You know, there's no kind of, and it's all been in commercial, so there's never that much training. You just get chucked in at the deep end <laughs> and you either sink or swim. And so far I've Yes, so far I've got (laughs) my head above the water.
1: What are the characteristics that you reckon have made you able to get through that? Because obviously not everybody could survive just thrown in Mm. into that kind of scenario. Is there something you think has helped you um, navigate those situations and be able to be the director of something like that at, you know, 20, 21 years of age?
0: Yeah. My mum died a few months ago and we've been reflecting on her life and I did the eulogy at her funeral. And uh, it, as those things happen, it causes you to you know contemplate deeply on your own life. And she was a goer, I said about my mum. She was always energised, always activated, um, never stopped. And I've reflected that the fruit didn't fall too far from the tree. So I've been a pretty activated person and uh, an interested and curious person. I'm also a bit of a nagger, I suppose, as well, <laughs> because you've got to... And I suppose one of the reasons that guy gave me that job was that I was showing, though I didn't realise it, the kind of prime characteristic of what a journalist needs to be, and that is persistence. Mm. You, there's, Say, as a television reporter, you've got your story, you know that the countdown's on to 6pm, and come hell or high water, you've got to have it on. So there's, that's one of my phrases. You, there's always got to be a way. There's got to be a way of doing it. So you need to be persistent. I've been pretty resilient through it all, although I've felt less resilient in recent years. That's just getting old, I suppose. (laughs) But I also have to say this, that the bigger picture of Christian faith has been absolutely central to my life and my work. Um, I'm not going to be a Bible basher, but that's just the truth. So while if you as you go on the road as a TV reporter and and it seems that that story is the biggest story in world history Mm -hmm. and that it gets on and that it's (laughs) right, and it really does feel like that, Mm. the next day you'll have trouble remembering what it is and to have a much bigger picture infinitely beyond that where you've got the creator and the sustainer of the universe running this show, no matter how many times we muck it up, and you see all that in the news, it's been a profoundly grounding thing. And it's and it's not a very common thing for people to last in my business for 40 years. <laughs> and I think that's probably the way that I've been able to do it, just that kind of bigger picture.
1: I do want to ask you a little bit more about that later on, but I wanted sure. you mentioned curiosity there, and I wanted to know in amongst the media environment. Obviously, there is a lot about the stories, a lot about the different people that you're getting to talk to. Mm. What is it that drives your curiosity and has driven you to be interested in people's stories? You know, it is it is something to want to interview people every Sunday night and find yeah. out about their lives. Yeah. What is it that makes you interested?
0: That's a very curious question, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> you're a good, Judo. Uh, look. Jesus was a storyteller. I mean, of all the modes of communication that God could have used in the different eras of human history, he dipped in about 2,000 years ago into essentially an oral culture. And how did Jesus communicate? He communicated through stories. And I know as a a speaker, when you're doing a talk and you get to a story, you can almost feel the radar of people mm. pop up and you have their attention. They've kind of re-engaged. I think we're wired for some kind of weird thing to be interested in the stories. And, oh, my goodness, the stories we've had on Open House. If you'd said to me, what do you think you'll get when you take on Open House? What do you think the next three years uh, would be like and the kinds of people that you'll have on the program. I could never have imagined the depth, the breadth, the insight, the wisdom, the, the names of the people that we've mm. had on, all with wonderful stories. In fact, I said to my producer, Claire, when I started, each person who hosts a program like Open House will shape it uh, according to what they, how they're wired and their own experiences. I said, I really just want to tell people stories because I think that's what arrests us. And I used to teach a preaching course at the Sydney Missionary and Bible College. I did one whole lecture one week was on the story because I know the power of it. And Mm. I didn't know how many stories we'd get, didn't know how successful I'd be at extracting those stories. But it's just been the most amazing ride to tap into those kind of stories.
1: It's the hardest question to answer, but I'm sure you do get it all the time. What has been the biggest story, the highlight, the interview that you have really been touched by the most over your time at Open House? I'll isolate it to Open House because over the last 40 years. (laughs) Oh, no, that's right. How long you got? (laughs) Might be a little bit much. So, yeah, has there been a standout for you in amongst so many great interviews? If
0: there was one standout, I'd say Tony Campolo. Uh, who we played in our last program? We've been doing Lee's top ten over the last couple of months, and only a portion of Tony Campolo mm. uh, could I have the time to replay. He's just um, the most marvelous storyteller. Actually, he has wonderful stories to tell. He's got a passion and a depth about him that is very, very rare in a in a. In a Christian speaker, there are a lot of Christian speakers, but few are so compelling, so arresting, and also so unpredictable as Tony Campolo. Um, And he's not afraid of stepping on toes, and he's not afraid of calling life a bit differently uh, to the the general current, even the Christian current. He's quite Mm. unexpected at at. at numbers of levels. For instance, he was the spiritual counsellor for Bill Clinton at the time that Clinton was getting himself in lots of deserved trouble over the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And there was a huge backlash towards Tony Campolo from within the Christian community that he would draw so close to such a sinner. Mm. And, of course, following in the footsteps of Jesus, friend of sinners and tax collectors, he had the the ultimate answer. Well, if I how how could I not be alongside this guy, president of the United States, in in a in a lot of trouble, but also deep humility and humiliation, called on him because they'd known each other, and asked him to navigate the way through spiritually, and he did, and it was an enormously important process for Clinton to uh, To move through, and Tony Campolasonia. If, if you want to catch the podcast, go to the Open House Community website, which will still be up, I hasten to say, yes. <laughs> and have a listen to him. He's the he's the full catastrophe. I say that in a nice way. He's yeah. just, just wonderful.
1: It certainly sounds like the show has been a lot of fun, and, and listening to it, it's been a lot of fun. Looking back on your career now a little bit more broadly, yes. has the journey so far looked like what you expected it to look like, because you've gone through those early days, TV, radio, yeah. open house. Now, you know, looking into the future, it's going to be a whole mixed bag as well. <laughs> yes, has it been what you expected?
0: No, not at all. I mean, I think it's been. If you'd had, if you'd said to me, "Well, what are your expectations?" As you said before, at eighteen, well, that expectation was fulfilled by twenty-one. So, who am I to say? I think who am I as who are, are any of us? In the pace of media change, for instance, in our industry, who, who can possibly call what's going to be there, say, five years ahead? No one's got an mm. idea. So there were no real expectations. It's just been one kind of ride after another. So as you said, it was radio, then television. I remember when I was first starting radio, I remember when I first did my first voice report, which is a 30-second kind of... Story where you're the reporter on the scene. It was absolutely terrifying to me. You know, I, it was just the hugest load. And then I used to see these people who were on air doing a, a program, say, over three or four hours, and I think, I could never do that. <laughs> and then if I'd even thought about it, if I'd seen people on television reading television news live to air, I I could never have imagined. Myself doing that, let alone for the hours a day that I used to do at Sky, non-stop, often and most of the time without a script. It was it would have been just unimaginable. Mm. Same with Open House. I, I've never had. I would never have had any idea of how great um, the privilege, but also the burden would be, which is kind of part of the reason why I thought uh, after three years, I think that now's the time.
1: Is part of the uh, the ability that has sort of enabled you to do that, do you think, is it just that approaching things one day at a time or have you been kind of mapped out in what opportunities you've said yes to and what you've said no to?
0: I actually think you'd massively constrain and constrict the opportunities that you could take up if you said, now, this is my pathway in life. I think it's frankly pretty ridiculous because, you know, a whole lot of events have happened to me that have been entirely unexpected Good and bad. So, I mean, I don't run my life. <laughs> I mean, in, a, in, that, mm. in many respects, that's a good thing, and uh, I w- I wouldn't want to constrict it so much by saying, "Well, this is my path, and mm. I'm not going to vary from that." You leave a lot of what God could do in your life out of it, if you if you think you can do it, which you can't even anyhow. Yeah. And I think the, life turns out to be much more adventurous if you just say, well, okay, we'll hop on the roller coaster and see where it takes me.
1: Some um, of the biggest adventures, I think, that come out of life are from the mistakes that we make. We've yes. heard of some of the highlights. Bit of a curly question for you, maybe one of those difficult ones to answer. What has been your biggest professional mistake, do you think? <laughs>
0: oh, my biggest... <laughs> well, my biggest personal um, embarrassment was very early in my television career. Now, for many, many, many years, I'd never have owned up to this, but um, they were the very early days of live crosses. So I was in the press gallery at Parliament House, the old Parliament House, Canberra. This is 1981. My first job in television, you know, which is a very daunting prospect. Yeah, I'd had a reasonably good experience in radio, but on television. With these early live crosses, you sit in the hot seat there and you're asked questions by the host of the program. It was a program called 11am. I look back on it now and and what I now know about preparation and mastering the brief and doing your research, I was just so manifestly, vastly ill-equipped to do it. So... um. <laughs> I very early in the interview, when I was being interviewed as the so-called expert on this this issue that I didn't really know much about, my my mind was so fried by this whole experience, live television. There's no second guess. I went blank, you know, one of those blank out moments, mm. and I just completely blanked out, <laughs> and I didn't know where to go. And I mean, I mean, I don't know what happened then. It's kind of this protective. Amnesia in a way to, I mean, I'm sure I survived <laughs> and I'm sure we went, we got to the end of it. Mm. But that cast a very considerable shadow over my television career for many, many, many years, actually, mm. and made me scared to death of live television. So I now look back on the back of uh, 13 years at Sky News, which is always live and often rolling and often with this big black hole of air and no script, I now just shake my head in wonder that I've been able to be equipped ultimately by God to do that. Mm. But I'll never forget that moment. And as I said, it Did shape a lot of terror in my life for many, many years. (laughs) I
1: can imagine it would
0: have. Very humbling experience. Yeah, Yeah, that's right.
1: How truthful on this note, how truthful are shows like the newsroom? Have you watched this kind of a show that like HBO release? They show, you know, the the sort of backstage preparation, the hustle bustle. Are they accurate to a degree? Because there's so many people listening right now who I can imagine just go, yeah, I want to be a part of that. The action, the adventure. But what's it truthfully like?
0: It's not like that. (laughs) If you go back uh, quite a few years now to a program called Frontline which was a total send up of the news business and especially the current affairs genre of the news business uh, I remember I was doing lots of speaking at the time so people would interview me after the talk and we'd have a Q&A, and they'd often say to me how true is Frontline it was ab- this absolute send up um, but very close to the bone and I said mm-hmm. you've got no idea how true Frontline is <laughs> I'm sorry, but all the glamour of all the kind of tension, and there's a mm. lot of tension in it, but it's also a much more rough and tumble.
1: So maybe a little bit more like Anchorman even. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's like
0: that right. Of the spectrum. Anchorman 2 coming out soon. Indeed. Can't wait for that one. It's yes. going to be a giggle. Yeah.
1: Now, we have actually touched on your Christian faith. I yes. want to ask you a little bit about that. By all means. How much of an undergirding has it actually had on you? Because... The sort of I ask this because I know some people as Christians, when they approach a professional career, they ha- they might have the idea of, I'm a Christian, I want to impact on this particular arena, or they enter the arena and their Christianity is just kind of something that's alongside them along the way. Yeah. Was it that conscious uh, a thing for you to be a Christian in the industry or what, what sort of part of that have you sort of sat on?
0: No, it wasn't something that was conscious that I thought, I must go into the media because I must have a voice for Christian faith. Um, with everyone who's employed me, and I've always been in the broadcast news business, they've not employed me as a Christian. So it's not my job to be a Christian, be a Bible basher, or be a proselytiser. So if you're going to categorise how I've lived out my Christian life in the midst of this, it's infinitely more as, as just a generic... Um, integrated part of my life who I am who I try to be i'd always hasten to say i'm not perfect, <laughs> never have been never will be who is, but as much as I can to live out the um, the hope that I have uh, that bigger picture that I was speaking about earlier um, and live out a life of good works and hopefulness in the midst of you know, what's often a pretty hopeless kind of arena of life being the news business. Um, I think the Christian community is always or often too focused on almost notching up notches on their belts of Christian converts, you know, people who've, who they've argued or debated or, you know, convinced into uh, following Christian faith i 've never been one like that i don 't think i 'm that kind of personality because I think your personality does shape who you are and how you play that out and that 's a god given thing mm. i 've been more one to see an engagement of people with Christian faith as a long time and a long term thing uh, most commonly just born out of friendship for it 's only in true friendship, and i 'm not talking about pretend friendship. For a time until mm. you know you, you either accept or reject Christian faith. I'm talking about true friendship. It's only in that context that people can truly know you, know the credibility of the claims that you make about this faith and whether they basically work. I'm ultimately probably, I think, because of my job, I'm a pragmatist. So you won't find me hanging around anything that doesn't work practically and over and over again. And I th- I say now after 40 years, thank God that I've had this framework and that I've had the resilience that I've had and that bigger picture that's enabled me to hang in there for that long.
1: I can imagine there'd be some people who'd go into that kind of arena where you are covering stories where there might be someone with an injury right behind you. There might be somebody oh, yeah. in physical need emotional need, spiritual need that mm. comes across your path on a daily basis, was there ever a time where you maybe you did this or you felt challenged to do it, to actually walk over to that person, to pray for them, to engage with them on that level? And how did they take it?
0: I've never done that, actually, to be honest, and as much as anything, never had the time because you've got that clock ticking down to 6 o'clock. Uh, although I must say there have been numbers of people not a large number of people but numbers of people with whom I've had an ongoing contact in fact just yesterday I spoke with a guy who I first came into contact with in 1988 and we've had quite a friendship he was a guy who suffered a terrible, terrible brain injury in a rugby league match and uh, I followed his story over many years and we've... uh, I, I wrote his book, which never was published in the end <laughs> for various reasons, but um, we've had an ongoing kind of connection and we haven't spoken for years. So there have been a few like that with whom I've connected, but also, not that I'm like this, but I compare the job of the journalist to someone like a surgeon, Um I'm not that brainy, (laughs) I I hasten to admit. But I think when I see surgeons, I think, well, how do you cope with all the blood? How come you don't faint or how do you manage that? Mm -hmm. And there's a certain level of detachment that those people have to have to be able to make that. And I think somewhat similarly in journalism, you cannot have your heart broken by every story that you do every night because most of them are heartbreaking because that's what the news business, sadly, is about. You've just got to be uh, a bit more detached from that. But it, but it doesn't mean that I've been cold and and completely detached always.
1: Mm. Yeah. Do you think the news business would thrive if it wasn't about those kind of stories?
0: Ah, yes, that's a very interesting question. Like, why is the news always so bad? Mm. People have often asked me that. And I, for a long time, wrestled to come up with a satisfactory answer. Because I think, why why is it so bad? Number one, because it rates. So, you know, people might say, oh, the news is always so bad and it, that's terrible. Well, I think, well, if you were inclined to tune into a, a new news broadcast of only good news, let me tell you, Kerry Packer... And Rupert Murdoch and all the media players would have been running good news bulletins for decades. Mm. So for some reason, bad news rates. I'll give you my reason. The reality of our life is that it's only temporary, right? And as the psalmist says, full of toil and trouble. And then we fly away after our 70 or 80 years. So that's reality. Life is always defined. Life is always temporary. Day to day, we live in absolute denial of that, right? (laughs) Now, you don't imagine that your life's going to end today, tomorrow, next Mm. week, next year, next decade, next century. Well, probably, Laura, it will. So we live in that denial of reality. And I think God has wired us to be much more in touch with reality than that. And in the news, we are wired into that reality of life being temporary, life being frail, life being full of toil and trouble for the 70 or 80 years, and then we're gone. And I think that's why we're almost irreversibly drawn to the bad news as it's played out in other people's lives, because it grounds us in that reality that God has wired us for. Um, that's in the lives of others until it eventually comes to us. Mm. But I think that there's this irresistible urge to dip into vicariously that reality in the lives of uh, other people. There there can be, I don't think, any other explanation for that because we're just wired to be connected with the bad news, as I said, otherwise Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Packer, all the media moguls have been giving us good news bulletins mm. for a whole lot longer. Than
1: it's that. probably that if it was too good, people would think, "Oh, you're not telling me the truth." Like yeah. you wouldn't trust them yes. if they only said good things,
0: because we know the reality that life is not always good. It's not that we wish it that way. That's just how it is. Mm. There is a lot of good in life, M- much more good, I might say, just for the record, than you ever see on the news. The news is not a an accurate reflection of life because life is a lot better than the news would have you believe. If, if you mm. watch a news bullet and you think, we're just going to hell in a handbasket. No, there's <laughs> a lot of good stuff there, but because of this kind of complicated process of how we're wired... I don't think you'll ever see much of that on a news bulletin other than the soft, warm, furry, fuzzy animal story at the end, which is always (laughs) supposed to leave you feeling very much better about the world, so... Mm. You come back tomorrow.
1: (laughs) Of course, of course. And for you especially being a Christian too, you'd have a unique approach to that, the way you engage with those kind of stories. I'm wondering on sort of from the thinking of people listening who are Christians wanting to, for whatever reason, be in a similar kind of level of the industry to what you've been. Maybe it's in another field. They're just wanting to take it up to that very high professional level. What do you think the biggest mistake is that Christians make trying to move into those high-end secular or even Christian industries?
0: Mm, That's a really big and very interesting question. I'd probably answer it in a number of ways. I think one of the things, this is probably one of the things, the greatest thing I've learned during Open House, and it's part of the reason why I'm leaving the program. I said in the announcement a few weeks ago of why I was leaving that um, to an extent no one would ever understand the Open House juggernaut is a huge thing to navigate each week. Um, The emails never stop. The decisions never stop. The texts never stop. There's always something, like always. And I've come to a point in my life where I recognise I need more input to balance all the output. So one of the biggest things I've learned in talking to some of the great ones that I have is the need to have work-life balance, is the need to rest. And I think... No matter whether we're Christian or not, um, we're not very wise, especially today because our world moves so fast, especially in communications, especially in social media, new media. We're, we're not good at switching off. We're not good at being still. We're not good at being quiet. We're not good at thinking. And it, in a Christian context, we're not good at retreating anymore to just read the Bible to pray, which ultimately demonstrates who's in charge of our lives. So I think that's, that's one of the great cautionary tales that I would bring um, based on my own experience, but also the great wisdom of many of the great ones, because I've often said to them, you know, how do you keep your faith fresh in the midst of the important work you do or the significant work or the amazing organization you've grown? And so many of them have talked about the Sabbath. Uh, Michael Cassidy the founder of Athric Enterprise uh, said to me if I ever have a minister who comes up to me and says oh I've been working so hard for God I haven't had a holiday for four years he says I say to them sinner repent (laughs) so you need as he says God made us for breaks so I think that's one of the great traps in aiming too high is to forget that we are human and we are created I mean that's how God rested on the Sabbath. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for the best of us. The other thing I'd probably say about how to connect with people, um, if you're aiming at high levels for with the Christian faith, is is recognize that it's God running the show, not you. I think that's one of the most powerful lessons that you can ever learn, and you'll likely learn that in any field of endeavor. And no matter how high you you go, that ultimately you're only there uh, dependent on the creator and the sustainer of the universe, though you might be very tempted and no doubt will be tempted to do it all in your own strength. But the realization that it's not about you and you are actually pretty frail, you are pretty vulnerable to all sorts of things, um, I think that holds the secret to uh, a life of integration in reality rather than thinking oh, I'm running the world because I've seen so many of those people come such a cropper. For a time, you know, they're like the shooting star and everything's dazzling and everything's seemingly successful. But especially in this business, it mm. really doesn't last long. And if that's been your life, if that's who you are, if that's what your identity is, who are you? When it's over, so you've got to have that that integration in reality and a recognition that it's it's not your show, buddy. Mm. <laughs> After all,
1: one of the biggest. Um, moments in your life that defines you in a public sense and probably personally as well was the um, sort of battle that you faced with chronic fatigue syndrome back in the late late 90s early Mm. 2000s that was a huge time in your life where as you say you were taken out of your work you didn't get to do a lot of that stuff that potentially could have been defining you and you had to learn to rest Yes. how much of that phase of life do you think still impacts on you now because in some respects it was quite a while ago but it is still recent history is it really and near for you now?
0: Yeah. When you lose two and a quarter years of your life from a very busy, very active, very fulfilling life uh, as a father, husband, father of four kids, in the prime of family life, a very high-profile job, newsreader, news reporter, chief Olympic correspondent for Channel 7, you suddenly lose it all and go into significant physical suffering as well as so much loss, loss of health, loss of finances, loss of job. I mean, I reported the unemployment figures for 25 years to become one of them myself. You don't go through all of that and easily walk away from it. It was an enormous upheaval in my life and yet an enormously significant time for me. In fact, I've often said to people, I don't think I would have been able to do open house in the way I've been able to do it without having those corners rounded off and without that suffering actually and being in the in the midst of the wilderness and finding out a whole lot about the vulnerability of the human condition i mean some of the stuff that i've been talking about with you i only got i would never have had an idea of any of this before that and people have often said to me if you had the choice would you go through the same experience? And I initially thought long and hard about that because it does involve a lot of loss. It does involve a lot of physical pain, chronic fatigue syndrome, though it's got dodgy written all over it. Let me tell you, I had everything to lose, nothing to gain by two and a quarter years in the wilderness. There are some days, I didn't think I was dying, but there were some days when you've, I felt like this must be what it feels like to die so i thought long and hard you know would i choose to do that but for what i've learned about myself and god and life and truth and reality i probably would i probably would go through you know i kind of hold my breath thinking <laughs> you really sure about that mm. my wife would answer differently <laughs> she'd say <laughs> definitely no yeah yeah but i think for the for the lessons you get and this is this is just not with chronic fatigue syndrome This is any suffering, Mm. and often the suffering goes on much longer than two and a quarter years, and often the suffering is lifetime. And if the only thing it does for you is to lift you out of this current kind of circumstance in your mind and within a Christian framework, see the hope of heaven, that can be a good thing. I'm not saying suffering is just this wonderful, marvellous thing that we need to just totally embrace and enjoy there's there's not a lot of enjoyment in it but i think for the lessons that it gives you about life faith culture god (laughs) the, the universe i think it was an immeasurably important part of my life
1: and I find it interesting that it happened just after you'd done uh, like some theological study. Yes. You'd just been heavily into the Word of God, and I saw a picture actually where you also had some lovely long hair. Yeah, you?
0: No, I, grew, I grew the hair and became a student again.
1: Totally looking groovy back in the day. Um, but why? Like, what was the reasoning behind taking sort of a, a brief moment in time out of your work to do theological study, and and then to find yourself? In that battle with chronic fatigue.
0: Yeah, it's a very interesting bit of timing. And I've always said how amazing that timing was. To cut a very long story short, I nearly lost my life in the 1994 bushfires that roared through the Blue Mountains of New South Wales over about two or three weeks. They were just enormous. I've often come close to losing my life in the midst of my job. I've never come this close. It was really scary. And the next day I went on a holiday and sat on the beach with almost a second go at life, reading a book called "In Pursuit of Excellence." and there was a chapter of the book that I read on the beach about setting goals and this happened within about a minute, and I thought, oh, what should I what goals should I set I've never been much of a goal person anyhow I was doing, getting more and more invitations to go out and do talks at Churches, because I was a, quote, Christian in the media, mm. I felt utterly, basically <laughs> on the back of that traumatic experience on 11 a.m., mm. freezing, I felt utterly ill-prepared for it. So I thought, well, that'll be a good goal to set. I'll do I'll do a bit of Bible study to get myself more geared up with that. I'll do some study on how to do a talk, because I was good at one minute, ten television scripts, 20-minute talk. How do you do mm. that? And I thought, all within this minute why don't I just set aside one particular year where I might do some full-time study and I'll pick um, 1997 because it's the year after the Atlanta Olympics, which (laughs) I had to do for Channel 7. So I got off the beach and started doing that and did it. I had 1998, the year after, fully booked with talks and then I fell ill two months after going back to Channel 7. cancelled all my talks, didn't do another talk for three years. Wow. Um, before I did my study, I was never a reader. I was a broadcast journalist. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I, I didn't read a lot, but I had to read a lot of stuff, lovely, wonderful, intoxicating stuff during this year of college. And it was, it was almost as if God had given me one year of theoretical brain kind of study and then just took me off into another kind of realm for two years in the midst of a wilderness of suffering, but still able to read and reflect deeply, independent of any church or religious framework. That was a very important thing. Mm. So it was a theological, essentially religious study. But then I was able to go and do the study of the wilderness and hard life, mm. where you really do find out about yourself and God, and I would have said before that God and I were pretty good partners in the joint endeavor of my life well i I sure got that gap sorted out, <laughs> and I came to believe in God, not because someone preached at me that He was true or real, I actually came to know it, and I could only do that sadly. In the midst of the wilderness of suffering,
1: mm. and I don't think you'd be the only one to say that. I think it'd probably yeah, be true of a lot yeah, of people's experience. I'm sure that's
0: true. Timing is everything, Laura. Mm. <laughs> that's what they say.
1: Jot that one down. Yes. Now I just have one last question for you. Yes. You've been super gracious to us, letting ta- letting pleasure. us have this much of your time. You anything? <laughs> the final question. Yes. Looking back on it all, looking ahead for you to say, "Cool, tick, Lee, you have been a great success." What would that be?
0: Uh, I wouldn't say I've been a great success for a start. So I've had, you know, lots of interesting jobs and somewhat of a profile. The measure of success in my life will be if I've got grounded, sensible, faithful children who are able to pass that on to their children. I have my Uh, firstborn son, Tristan, who's now the father of three boys. So it really will matter uh, most for me at the end of my life that uh, a life of faith, a life of hope, and a life of integration with reality, an honest life, um, about warts and all, is passed on to my children, and that my wife if she outlives me will be able to reflect on on a life of um, rich joy that we've had in the midst of marriage hasn't always been easy been lots of ups and downs but um you know what they say people on their deathbed never ever say oh i wish i'd been in the office i wish i'd been in the studio just that bit more i can never imagine ever saying that in fact i've made Numbers of quite significant and countercultural decisions. One of which is to leave Open House. You know, at the prime of Open House, um, I've made these countercultural decisions so that I can have a better balance in my life, and I can still remain relevant to my wife and family as I've sought to be in the in the past. They've been the best decisions I've ever made. So that's how I'd like to bow out, whenever that might be. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope one oh three two's free daily email devotional at hope 1032comau dot com dot AU.